Well, in the context of Luke 18, um, had a parable on prayer at the beginning, verses 1 to, uh, to 8. Persistence in prayer. Persistence in praying for the right things, though. Not just anything, but for the right things, for God's justice, quite simply. That's what he says in 7 and 8. He compares in verses 9 to 14 two men who pray, one self-righteously, thanking him that he's not like other sinners, the other one flat out admitting, I'm the worst of the sinners. And then this little paragraph here in verses 15 to 17 about Jesus, but babies, children coming to Jesus, whereas the disciples thought that they were a nuisance to Jesus. Jesus said, let them come. Do not hinder them. In fact, in one gospel's um, account, it was infuriated Jesus. Don't, don't tell those kids to not come to me. Bring them. Jesus loved children. Jesus was one of those guys that, you know, that works in the nursery, that, that, that's got little kids all over him. He's got one on his shoulder. He's got two or three hanging from his legs, and he's just smiling. Or he's on the ground. He can't get up, but he doesn't want to get up. He's got kids all around him, and somebody snaps a photo of him, and he's just grinning ear to ear. That, that would have been Jesus with children, no doubt. Don't hinder them. And then he makes the, the, the illustration of children as children come to me in faith. They come boldly, but with humility. They don't expect me to, uh, to do anything, but they come boldly to me, as any child does their parent. We come to our parents, we expect things from our parents. We don't understand how bold we are until we become parents. We think, well, we had a lot of gall to go to our parents and tell them, here's what you need to give me. You know, here's what I need. Here's what I want. And Jesus likes that. There's some, it takes a little bit of gall to go before the almighty God and say, Lord, here's what I need. Here's what I want. And God tells us to do that. But come like a child. And so we see in this next account, and in the same context, is this rich, young ruler. Luke's account says he's a ruler. Uh, an archon would be the Greek word. It's the same word used in Matthew 8 for a, um, a synagogue ruler, one who rules in the synagogue. Uh, Matthew's account says it's just someone. Someone came up to Jesus. But Matthew's account also says that he's young. So he would be between the ages of 20 and 40. He's young uh, in that sense. He's a ruler. He's got some authority. Uh, and we know that he's wealthy. All the gospel accounts say that he's wealthy. And so I'm comparing this throughout to Matthew and Mark's, which we know is the synoptic gospels. And so uh, Mark's gospel says that he ran up to Jesus. Again, in light of Jesus saying, anyone who doesn't come to me at the end of verse 17 like a child will not enter the kingdom of God at all. This man runs up to Jesus like a child would do. Luke just has him questioning him. A ruler questioned him saying. But again, picture Mark's where he runs up to Jesus. He finally finds Jesus. He runs up to him and he falls down on his face before Jesus. There's some humility there. Appearingly, seemingly I should say, a young man coming to uh, receive eternal life in great humility. He's saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Matthew's gospel doesn't say good teacher. It says teacher what good thing must I do? Here it's, good teacher, what shall I do? Well, are they contradicting each other? Each gospel writer is writing and putting in, in their account what, uh, what they uh, deemed necessary. I believe he probably said good on both. Good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? But he certainly wouldn't imply there, even without the word good on what good thing, it, the implication is what good thing. It's not like he would say, what bad thing must I do to have eternal life? So it's implied anyway. Good teacher. We, we call teachers good all the time. 
That's a good teacher. That's a, that's a good teacher. This was not a phrase used in the first century. Never. In all of rabbinic literature, not a single time in the history of what's recorded is a rabbi, a teacher, called good teacher. How about that? This is why Jesus says, and he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In fact, that's a quote from um, Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, and Psalm 53, 1. There is no one good, not even one. Of course, we know that God is good. But if God is good, no one even approaches or encroaches upon God's goodness. So Jesus is, is asking this guy all along. You, we might see this guy, we would see, as a hot prospect for evangelism. Wouldn't you say, if you know this account? I mean, this is one of those people that if you get on an airplane or you go somewhere, you pray, Lord, put this person next to me. Let this person sit next to me. And you got your Bible out and you're ready to go. I did that when we were going to Israel one time. And I, I had my Hebrew Bible out, uh, leaving out of New York. Half of the, the uh, uh, population of those planes going to Israel is a Jewish population. I thought, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the, they're going to see me reading Hebrew. They're going to ask, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. You know, I had three seats to myself for that entire trip. No joke. No joke. I had three seats. The two people that were supposed to sit next to me, they came. It was a husband and a wife, probably in their 50s or something. They took one look at me, and I was like vermin. She sat on the end. He went to the back, clearly looking for another seat, found it. I got all three seats. It's like God was saying, appreciate that, Lance. Don't need you to share the gospel, but I'm giving you three seats. So, didn't get to share the gospel, but this is one of those things that you hope for. You, you pray for, Lord, let this person sit next to me, and let me be available and ready to share the gospel. Jesus seems to do everything against what we would call proper rules of evangelism here. He doesn't seem to. He does. I mean, he starts off, why do you call me good? Instead of saying, thank you, thank you. You must know that I'm God in flesh. Right? He could have asked him that. You must know that I'm God in flesh. Since no one calls a rabbi good, you must understand that I am come from God. Clearly, you ran up to me. You fell before me. You know that I'm God. No, Jesus is almost sarcastic. Why do you call me good? Can we get past greetings, Jesus, and get on? Save this guy. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You ever had someone kind of put your, your, your uh, greeting down? Um, I've seen it happen. I've not done it. But you come in and you say, hey, man, how you doing? What are you asking me how I'm doing for? What, 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 does it look like I'm doing good? You know, anyone who says that to you kind of puts a damper on anything you were going to say after that. Uh, Jesus is kind of, he's testing this guy. No one's good but God alone, but okay. And Jesus says when he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life there in verse 18? You expect that Jesus would go through a, maybe a spiel? Well, I mean, Romans hasn't been written yet, the book of Romans. Paul, the Apostle Paul hasn't been saved yet. So he, he could have, Jesus could just have easily said, now, uh, in just a few years, there's, an, there's a man I'm going to save. He's one of your own. He's a Pharisee. He hates me, but he's going to love me, and he's going to write a book to the church in Rome. And here's what it's going to say. All of sin falls short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. He could have said that, prophesied, but he didn't. He could have used some spiel and, and used something along the lines of what the, the Old Testament prophets said, is that no one is good, no one does good. Um, God delights in following his law. Yes, he could have. But when the man's asking, how do you get eternal life? It's what Jesus doesn't say that's odd. 
Even more odd, what he does say is he starts to quote from the law, the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. I mean, Jesus seems so cavalier here. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Okay, well, these are, these are the commandments six through nine. And then out of order, he puts in the fifth one, which is honor your father and mother. By the way, if you don't know this, the Ten Commandments are, are divided in almost in half. The first four of the Ten Commandments are about man's relationship to God. Uh, no other gods before me, no idols. I am the Lord your God. Keep Sabbath day holy. The, the other six are about man's relationship to man. Don't commit adultery. That would be a sin against your spouse. Uh, don't lie. That would be a sin against the person you're dealing with. Don't covet. Uh, these are the ones that are man to man, woman to woman. So they're split up, and really Jesus later says, what does he say the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Right? So to love God, that's the first half of the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbors yourself, that's the second half of the Ten Commandments. So if you can keep the Ten Commandments, you're in. In fact, I'm going to speak a little bit of heresy for a second. You do not need Jesus. You do not need saving grace if you can keep these commandments. The law will get you to heaven if you can keep it. Now, anyone here know of anyone ever in the history of the world who kept them? How many of you know people who, who think they have? Here's one of them. So, again, it's not heresy to say you don't need Jesus because God has given away the law, but no one can keep the law. Therefore, we fall short of God's standard. We have sinned. We will die as a result, and yet God brings salvation through his son. So Jesus is, is uh, the way of the master here is to feel this guy out, see exactly where you are. You know the commandments. What the man should have said was something like, yeah, I know the commandments, Jesus, but come on, let's be honest. Who can keep those? If he would have heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he would have learned that, that adultery, though you can avoid adultery in the flesh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount said, if you lust after another person in your mind, you've already committed adultery with her there. Jesus said, if you hate another human being in your mind, you're so angry at them, that's the, the seeds that lead to murder. You are guilty of murder, even if you've never actually killed anyone. If he had heard the Sermon on the Mount, he would have said, okay, Jesus, let's just be honest. There's no way I can keep this. I heard your sermon. I was there at the Mount of Beatitudes. I heard you preach it. No way I can. He either didn't hear it or he still thought he was great. Because look at what he says. All these I've kept. Matthew's gospel says, uh, when he says, you know the commandments, Matthew's gospel says, the man asks, which ones? As, as if there's some sort of, of uh, picking and choosing. Which ones? Did he expect Jesus to say, ah, just handle, you know, three through four. That'll, that'll get you in. People do that. If you want to know what kind of a person you really are, so as to avoid calling yourself good, just have a copy of the Ten Commandments with you every day. I promise you'll never get past number one. We make idols in our hearts. God is not our only God. We make gods of our family. We make gods of our children, gods of money. We make gods of television, leisure, alone time. We are idolaters at heart. We are not getting past one. If you want to skip one and say, oh, those are the tough ones, the first nine, let's just go to the end. How about coveting? Just test yourself by the tenth one. You failed too, didn't you? 
I won't tell you whose it is, but uh, if you drove in this morning, you saw a really nice Corvette sitting out front. Don't tell me you didn't look at that and go, someday. And if you know whose it is, you're thinking, I'm a better person than he is. <laughs> and who isn't? I, I'm trying to find him here, but uh, anyway, he knows who he is. We look at these things. We covet. We cannot escape. That's why I call all of you and include myself wretched sinners. We cannot get out of here. We may not do what we do in the flesh. We may not go out and commit sins in the flesh. We may be completely moral. I am the most moral person I've ever known. I am. I am the most moral person and always have been. I was a rule follower from a child. Mom and dad told me to do something. I did it. I mean, I was threatened with a breadboard and a belt, and I knew that hurt. No, I will do what they say. I saw my kids, my kids, I saw my, my friends get spanked at school. Yeah, we used to get spanked at school. Uh, and I didn't want any part of that. No way. And I certainly didn't want to go home and tell my parents I got spanked at school because then it was going to come double or triple because I had two parents. Both would get after me. I, I didn't do that. I'm, I'm the most moral person ever, and yet I am the sinner because you can't avoid it up here. It's always brewing, is it not? So for those of you who find offense at me calling you sinners, get with the program, folks. You need to understand what's in your head and tell God what he already knows. This guy doesn't get it. Which ones? I have kept all of these from my youth. Jesus doesn't refute him. He doesn't argue with him and say, oh, you're, you're full of malarkey. You're crazy. You're a fool. He doesn't throw names at him. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, assuming that he's actually kept these commandments, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Whew. Sell all that you have. We're going to meet a guy in the next context, blind Bartimaeus. Who does? The easy thing for blind Bartimaeus is he only possessed one thing, a mat that he had been laying on, begging, a little mat that anyone would be happy to leave, probably infested with lice. But this guy's rich. It's a little bit higher calling, a little bit bigger request to tell the rich to sell everything you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. The man wanted to know, how can I have eternal life, back in verse 18? And Jesus is saying, here's how you can have treasure in heaven. Clearly, these are synonymous. Treasure in heaven. Heaven, eternal life. Jews had some concept of eternal life. Jews believed that they were going to heaven above any and all. Any Jew then and Jews now were Jews. Jewish people go to heaven. We are God's people. There's no getting around that in their own minds. That's where we're going. But apparently, with this man's wealth, his status in society as a ruler, his youth, Something was lacking. He knew it. As many do. Many realize, I might have all of this. I might have everything I ever wanted in life. All the money I need. I'm married with a family. I've got this, that, and the other. But it's that God-shaped hole in our soul. Perhaps he felt that. And he just needed to go to Jesus, whom he had some deal of respect for, having heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. And he's essentially saying, Look how great I am. What else do I need to do? Is there anything else I need to do to ensure that I'm going to get what I'm already sure I'm going to get? What do I lack? And Jesus told him, be careful when you ask Jesus 
a question like this. Sell all that you possess and then come follow me. In Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, uh, there's a, two brief parable, parables where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like one who, who found a pearl of great price. What did he do with everything he owned? He got rid of it all, sold it all so that he could buy that pearl of great price. Gave up everything to get that pearl. It's like a treasure he found in a field. He sold everything to buy that field to get that treasure. Gave up everything. Well, this is not new to Luke's gospel. Mind you to go back to chapter uh, 14 in Luke. Luke chapter 14. We see these crowds following Jesus. It's the same crowd from 14 that we're in in, verse, in chapter 18. Large crowds. And Jesus says to them, he doesn't woo anybody. He's not like your modern megachurch, water it all down, Christianity, to, Christianity light preachers. He doesn't just say, this is great, you're all here. Let's sing some songs. Jesus is going to try to thin the, cloud, the crowds out. Again, chapter 14, verse 25, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We hit that one hard. Now, he doesn't mean you need to have some loathsome rage and, and what we would call hatred for our parents. The word hate in that context clearly means to love to a lesser degree. You love your family. We're told throughout the Bible, love our family, honor your father and mother. You can't honor your father and mother of the fifth commandment and hate your father and mother. That's a contradiction. What Jesus is using here is hyperbole. And he's saying you need to love them to a lesser degree. They must be loved, but compared to your love for me, there is no comparison. And if you can't do that, you can't be my follower. If you can't take up your cross, that is, take your cross to your own Calvary, die for me. If you can't die for me, you can't be my disciple. There's too many people then and now who are simply trying to add Jesus as some sort of a spiritual fire insurance policy to have everything and then add Jesus. Do you remember Luke 16, 13? 16, 13 says this. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. People try all the time. People come to church and call themselves Christians, and they serve their wealth, and they serve both, and they think they've got it. This guy thinks he's got it. He believes he's serving both God and wealth. Jesus said, it can't be done. It can't be done. So in order to determine who his follower is or whether this man really wants treasure in heaven, whether he really wants to ensure eternal life. By the way, everyone's getting eternal life when you die. Everyone has eternal life, don't they? It's just a matter of where you're going to spend that eternal life. It's either heaven or hell. It's either the lake of fire where there is no rest, there is no peace. You have COVID times 10 for the rest of your life. You've got post-nasal drip for the rest of your life. We just think of that as a 75, 85-year life. This is for eternity. Once again, last night I laid down after a long day, got in bed. I had a rough day yesterday, rough time, um, much of which was exacerbated by the fact that a 23-year-old young man who used to come to church here was dead. Some other things. And I laid down and I thought, God, thank you. 
Thank you that one day I, along with your people, are going to be relieved from this mess. Thank you that there is hope. Thank you that you are coming back. Thank you that as I pray for your justice from, Matthew, from Luke 18, 1 to 8, that you're going to send it. You're going to bring it. It's going to happen. But thank you that in the meanwhile I can get into bed and sleep peacefully. Waiting for that time. Waiting for you to come. Because I know in hell there will be no beds. There will be no rest. There's only a lake of fire and judgment without hope. To be a follower of Christ, we must be willing. I didn't say you got to go give everything up. But willing to give it all up. To say this is just worldly. It's just what Todd prayed. It's all God's. He's given portions of it to, to us. Some he gives more. Some he gives far less. But when we realize that it's all his, to give it up, that's nothing. It's not mine to begin with. And so we, we do things like give our 10%, which, by the way, is nowhere in the New Testament. Jesus never says give your 10%. The apostles never say give your 10%. We get that from the word tithe in the Old Testament, which means 10th. But when you add up all the tenths, the tithes of the Old Testament, it comes up to almost 30%. So how many of you are willing to do that from an Old Testament principle? But we give a tenth. Some will give a little bit more, 10, 20, maybe even 50. The question is, wasn't your, the question is, I should say, not what you're giving to the Lord, but what you're doing with the rest. What are you doing with what you're not giving? How is that being spent? Are you willing to give it all up if need be? You've got to ask yourself that question. Everyone has to. Everyone has to go home today, if you haven't already, and say, what would I do? I don't know what the circumstance would be whereby we are actually think that God wants us to give it all up, but are we willing? Are we attached to it? My guess is if you can't give of 10%, you're certainly not going to be able to give 100%. If you can't give 10% of your money to the cause of Jesus Christ and the church that he established... You can't give any of it. You're not going to. But Jesus is saying, you give it all up. Sell it. Come follow me. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Looks like Jesus is teaching a work salvation, doesn't it? He's not. He's just ascertaining where the man is spiritually. Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad. Uh, the other gospels say deeply grieved. Why would he be sad? For he was extremely rich. Rich, even today, and certainly back then, if you had a lot of money, it wasn't just you that was giving it up. If you gave it up, that means your kids don't get to inherit it. Your parents don't have it. The estate you have that's in your family is gone. It doesn't just affect you. I mean, in the modern day, you give up all your wealth, your kids are going to be, what about my college fund? What about my, my wedding fund? What about this? What about the new, new car you said you were going to buy me after I graduated from college? There are ramifications for giving this up. Jesus wasn't interested in that. He wanted to know what the man's heart was because discipleship costs us everything. It costs us everything. It costs Jesus everything. He was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him. Mark's gospel says, and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. I can't help but to see Jesus going, bless your little heart. 
He loved him by telling him the truth. That's how you love someone. If you turned over to, to Mark 10, 21, it says that God Je- said Jesus felt love for him. But the word felt isn't there. He just loved him. It's, it's, a, it's an action. It's not a feeling. Jesus loved him with the truth. He could see that the man in that moment was torn. Sell everything. Give it to the, to the poor. Then come follow me. And he must have seen the man's face just go cold. What? And Jesus loved him in that moment with the truth. He loved him. Luke just says he looked at him and he said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I have never tried to thread a needle with a camel. It's hard enough to use it with a thread. You got to get magnifying glasses and you will lose your religion trying to get The image here is it's impossible. There's an old saying. You may have heard it. It's a myth. It's never been shown in the history of history that there was some needle's eye gate down along at the end of the wall. A needle's eye gate where it was real narrow and you had to squeeze that camel in and that's what Jesus means. It's not. It's just a a hypothesis. It's never been shown. Never known of a needle's gate whereby it was difficult to get in. Jesus is not saying it's difficult. Jesus is saying it's impossible. It's impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle. It's as impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. How about that? But let me add this. It's just as impossible for anyone else to get into the kingdom of God. It is impossible for any of you, for any of us to enter the kingdom of God. We can't do it. There's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do. If we get to the celestial gate and we are pounding on the door, there is nothing we can say except, Jesus, you did it all. You did it all. I believed in you. That's it. That's all. It is impossible. Man cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, they who heard it said, and who can be saved? In other words, I mean, in fact, Matthew and Mark said the disciples at this point, the disciples were astonished. What? The idea is the rich are rich because God gave them all that wealth. Isn't that the blessing of God? Doesn't he love them more than the poor? Can't they give more to the temple? Can't their sacrifices be more expensive? And doesn't that bless God's kingdom? No. No, 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 no. They're astonished. The whole idea back then, as it is today, is that those who have more than others are blessed more than others. The other principle is people who suffer harshly must have done something worse than people who don't. That's wrong too. So they're astonished. How can this be? How can it be hard for a rich man into the kingdom of God? So they asked, who then can be saved? As if to say, if they can't be saved, who can? But Jesus said the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. What a relief. 
What I can't do, God can. What you and I are unable to do, God can. And here's even better news. God did. God did. He became man to live our life and die our death so that we can have what he did by connecting ourselves with him by faith. Did you hear that? What Jesus did, his victory is our victory. He won, we didn't. But in his victory, we have his victory if we connect with him, if we believe in him, if we place our trust in him. His victory is our victory. You'll not hear any better news ever. I don't have to keep the commandments. You can't keep the commandments. I don't have to give all my money to the poor. God can give to the poor. The question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to give what God has given you up to the poor? Peter in verse 28 said, behold. I mean, they're watching this man walk away. They watch the rich guy walk away. They're having this conversation with themselves now. Jesus did not say, hey, Pete, go get him. I could have shared that a little bit better. John, run after him. You're faster than Peter. Run and go get the guy. (laughs) We do learn that in John's gospel. John was apparently very impressed with his speed. But he doesn't. He doesn't think to himself, you know what? We could utilize that man's money to beef up our little 12-man ministry here. We could have nicer shoes. We could sleep in nicer accommodations. That's what people do at churches. Pastors know how to find people with money. They know how to find them, and they know how to try to appease them, keep them in the church, get their money, because as long as they're getting paid, I mean, who cares what else is happening? Not Jesus. He lets him go. And they had this conversation, and Peter says, Behold, we've left our homes, literally our own, and followed you. Which is to say, Matthew's gospel even asks in Matthew 19, 27, he says, what about us? What are you going to do for us? And go turn over there, if you would, to Matthew 19. To your left, you'll go past Mark, and then you'll come to Matthew. Matthew 19. Because the answer is awesome. Beginning in verse 27. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 27. There it is. Jesus, Peter said, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? And here's Jesus' answer. It's much more complete in Matthew's gospel. Jesus said to him in verse 28, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. By the way, that's the second coming. Jesus returns, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man returns, he will sit on his glorious throne. Where's that throne? Well, it's in Jerusalem. You know, the capital city of Israel that belongs to the Jewish people, not to the Philistines who are renamed the Palestinians. It belongs to Israel. It belongs to Israel's king that God made a covenant with. His name was David. Through the line of David on down through. That's why we have to read those genealogies. We see the descendancy of David. David, yeah, coming, having come from, from Abraham, the great promise given to Abraham, we see David and then Jesus, each of them a thousand years apart. 
So Jesus is going to come sit on that throne that David once occupied because God promised that he would. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, he's speaking to Peter and the disciples, you shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, when Jesus returns, the 12 apostles, now we know Judas killed himself and he was replaced by Matthias. We read about that in Acts chapter 1. Those 12 disciples will sit on thrones at the second coming of Jesus when he sets up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Those 12 apostles will sit on the thrones, 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that great? And by the way, in the beginning of that millennium, everyone there is only believers because Jesus, when he returns, as you recall, Matthew 25, he separates the sheep from the goats. This is at the end of the tribulation. Sheep are the believers, goats are the unbelievers. Both of them live through the tribulation. The goats are taken away and put into the lake of fire. The sheep live on the earth and they will populate the earth for the next 1,000 years. And the 12 disciples that followed Jesus, minus Judas plus Matthias, will judge those people. What about us Gentiles? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says, we as Gentile believers will judge the nations. What are we going to do in the millennium? What are we going to do in heaven? We are going to reign with Jesus. We're not going to sit in a cloud and pluck a harp. Thank God, right? We are going to reign with the king of kings over the, the kingdom of peoples who are there. What we do on this side of eternity has eternal value in eternity. Ain't that great? Watch how you live. Watch what you're willing to give up. Go back to Luke. Certainly Matthew gives a bigger answer than Luke does. So we're back in Luke 18, 28. Peter said, Behold, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children, which is what he said you do in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke 6, 14, 26. Hate your family. Follow me. There is no one like you, Peter, and all of these men with us. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. He's not saying, look, just leave your family and you'll be good. But for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times, Mark says a hundred times, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So to give it all up, if it's wealth that you own, to give it all up now is to gain it back right here, right now. And in the age to come, eternal life. Because you did it? No. Because the fruit you exhibited proves that you had salvation. The fruit that we exhibit, how we act now, determines whether or not we really believe. What we're willing to give up determines whether we truly are children of God. Where, when we might ask Jesus, can we have eternal life? The question would, would come back. Ask, ask Jesus today, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, churches throughout the, the, the centuries have just said, just, just believe and you're in. And, and that's true to some extent. But what does it mean to believe? Believe means to repent of unbelief because if you believe, you're turning away from unbelief. That's repentance from unbelief. 
Jesus himself said, if you can't be a follower of mine, you might say you believe in me, but you can't be a follower of mine unless you're willing to give it all up. And of course, we know from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, that there will be many on that day when Jesus returns who say, Lord, Lord, after Jesus has gone in and closed the door, Lord, Lord, what about us? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And no doubt they did. And the voice they hear from the other side is, go away from me, you doers of lawlessness. Well, you might call him Lord. You might say you believed in your church. You might have walked up in an altar call. But what you do, how you act, proves whether you love Christ. Same is true with my, in our marriages, right? I can tell my wife I love her all I want. But if I yell at her, verbally abuse her, hit her, cheat on her, Oh, I love you, dear. She knows better. Anyone does. Oh, I'm your friend. Oh, but you talk bad about me behind my back. I bet I'm your friend. Yeah. With friends like you, I don't need enemies. So what about with you and God? God knows your heart. Get right with him. Level with him. You see there in your bulletin, I think the rich young ruler is just a depiction of of mankind through the ages. I'll just blow through these. He desired spiritual things. He ran up to Jesus. Wanted to know what he could get from him, but he had a warped view of salvation, as people do. If I be good, God will give me salvation, or I am good. The only way you can be saved, folks, is you know what you're in trouble of. What, you in, what are you in... Wait a minute. I don't even know how to put it, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> Do you know what you're being saved from? Nothing like being a preacher. You get up here, you, can't, you don't, can't find words. If you don't know what you're being saved from, why would you say, I want to be saved? The wages of sin is death, eternal death. Christ died our death while we were yet sinners. Christ died, Romans 5, 8. When did he die? While we were yet sinners. How can I be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's not a word of faith thing. It's not a mimicking some montage, parroting some word, Jesus is Lord. No, if you don't believe it in your heart, the words mean nothing. Warped view of salvation. He thought he could be good enough for God. He had a superficial view of Jesus. He believed that he could actually keep God's law. He's one of those people that when you ask them, are you a pretty good person? They say, yeah, I'm a good person. Folks, if you're visiting today and you've never heard this before, please, I tell you this in, in all the love I can muster. You ain't no good. You are not good people. I know you. I love you. I do. I pray for you. And I'm the same way, by the way. It's not me and you. It's us. We are not good people. We are sinners, fallen short of the glory of God. Can people who commit murder be nice guys? If they're nice to you and say, well, it's strange that he killed all those people. Uh, He was sure nice to me. What would we say about that? Are we going to go with the nice side? Or or do we know inherently that person's a murderer? Or a, a child predator? Child predators are very nice, aren't they? When they're luring your children. Oh, they're nice, and they have candy. They're so sweet. Those child predators, man, you got to give them credit. They're really nice. 
They're vermin. There's none of us who are good. Don't ever go away thinking you're good because you're not. None of us are. If you think you're good, then why did Jesus need to die on that cross? Why did that God-man have to shed his blood for us? He had an unhealthy view of money. He was deceived by power and wealth, as most of us are. He was unwilling to part with the temporary to gain the eternal. Unwilling to part with what's temporary, folks. Whatever you're enjoying right now, it will come to an end. Even if you get to enjoy it with great health and it never goes away, at least until you die. But when you die, it's over. It is the closest you will ever get to heaven enjoying what you have here if you will sacrifice eternity for what you enjoy here. And that's what this man did. Unless he repented later on, maybe we'll see him in heaven. Maybe he'll say, I'm that guy. I I did repent. But if he didn't, he got his heaven. It was on this side of glory. And he forfeited eternal life. Oh, I take that back. He has eternal life. He'll never die. He'll never rest. He enjoyed what is finite. He forfeited what is eternal. He departed from Jesus without hearing the best part. The best part. People do that. They come to church. They get offended. I know. It happens. They say things like, I didn't mind what you said, but you could have said it better. Okay, I'll grant you that. I'm just a man. I'm full of faults myself. Let the Word of God speak. I was offended. I wanted to go to church for a little rah-rah. I didn't go away feeling good. Good! Mission accomplished. The only thing I want us leaving here feeling good about is who Jesus Christ is. Rejoicing in Him. That's what worship is. What are you going to do? Go away going, I'm going to worship me. Man, that preacher made me feel good today about myself. No, I, I failed if I did that. We want to feel good about who God is and recognize who we really are and then the grace He's given to us. And He departed Jesus worse than before He came. Let me just close in, the, in that last section there. Jesus shares the gospel with others differently. And so should we. Know your audience. Know who you're talking to. Ask God for wisdom when speaking the truth. You don't have to go through what Jesus did with this man. This man was self-righteous. He thought he had it. Okay, you've done this, you've done that. Okay, I'll grant you that. Give it all up, sell it, come follow me. He made his point. To say know your audience, know the pros, the cons, the hindrances. Share the gospel though. Speak the truth in love. Don't be after a friendship evangelism project where you try to make friends for a while so that you can later lower the boom with the gospel. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say, come hang with us. You'll, you'll really like us. I think you'll really like my guys. We'll hang around for a while and then I'll, t- I'll answer your question in a couple of weeks after you get to know us and like us. No. He just gave it to him and let him go. That's what evangelism is. Speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. You can't manipulate or coerce someone into the kingdom of God. Give them the truth. What did Jesus say back when he sent the disciples out? Tell them the kingdom of God is here. If they receive you, stay there. If they don't, wipe the dust off your feet and move on. Give the gospel and move on. We don't have to make Jesus cool. He's not cool. Nothing cool about Jesus. We don't have to make him hip. We don't have to dress him up. We don't have to try to look hip ourselves. Just give the word. Speak the truth. 
If you can't do it in love, don't do it. How can you not love the unsaved? This is the only heaven they'll ever know. Speak the truth in love. Hit the raw nerve where it influences the most. Jesus knew where this guy's raw nerve was. It was his money. I've tried to do that through the years. There are sometimes I, I preach a sermon with buckshot, where it just spreads. And I think, well, this will hit everybody. There are other times I have one, maybe two people in my mind, and I'm shooting a slug. And I just let everybody else eavesdrop. Usually the person that I'm talking to knows it, and usually they never come back. That's not my goal. It's not what I want. But that is how you preach. You send a slug. Here's the truth. Why? Because I love you. And if you died today, you would burn in the lake of fire. Here's what needs to be said. Hit the raw nerve and deal with the consequences of rejection. Not everyone's going to listen to your, your, to your gospel presentation. People might make fun of it. You might go away thinking, I could have done that better. Maybe you could have. But it's not about doing it good and bad. It's about doing it accurately. Share the gospel in love. And those last two is know that you either sow seeds or you water them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he said, look, I watered or I planted the seed. He speaks of the next preacher that came to Corinth. His name was Apollos. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. We don't make Christians. We plant seeds. Planting seeds is giving the gospel to someone who's never heard the gospel. Watering the seed is giving the gospel to someone who may have heard it in the past already, and you watering it. You giving a little bit more clarification to it, answering another question or two, maybe even arguing with, with folks. Some people want to argue. But leave the growth to God, as Jesus did. Here's the good news. Do with it as you please. It's not my goal. It's not what I do. We know from John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus himself said this, no one can come to me unless the Father God the Father, who sent me, God the Son, draws that person to me. You see, God the Father must have drawn this person to Jesus. He came to Jesus and fell down. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father enables him to do so. But all who come to Jesus and ask questions doesn't mean they're saved. All who come and ask for the gospel are not going to be saved. You and I are not judged by who's saved. We're judged by our faithfulness, are we not? Give the gospel. That's why we're here, is it not? Bring glory to God. Not every rejection is an eternal one. Because someone who may have rejected what you gave them might very well come to Christ at the next person who waters that seed. And then what we looked at in the past, remember Jesus said in Luke 16, you're making eternal friends. You're investing in eternity. By giving the gospel, giving our money, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, we're making disciples. Every bit of money that goes in the offering box isn't just paying for the air conditioner in the church and for the salaries of the employees. It goes literally all over this entire planet where the gospel is heard on the radio, on the radio, on, on the internet, where the gospel is being fed to our missionaries and people are spreading it there. People we don't even know will come into heaven and say, thank you for your gift. Thank you for serving the Lord. Thank you. The question is, are you willing to give it all up? Again, I don't think Jesus, you're not going to go home and hear a voice saying, I want you to give it all up, sell it. Just want you to be sitting on nothing but a, a foundation after you've given your house away. 
which would be strange, but uh, God's not asking us to do that. The question is, are we willing to? Are you willing to? And what would that look like? You see, folks, discipleship following Christ costs us everything, everything, to gain everything else. What we give up and are willing to give up now. Jesus said, you get in the here and now and eternal life on the other side. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And those who are saved want to do one thing and one thing only, bring glory to God as the fruit of their salvation. Is that you? Folks, if you have ever a question at the end of a sermon, we don't do altar calls, but I always stand down here. There are others who are down here who will answer your question. If you need to receive Christ, do so. You can come down and do it. We usually close the service. We always do. I've had people that, that have the Baptist or Methodist background and say, well, how do people get saved in your church if you don't have an altar call? Funny how that happens, isn't it? People still get saved without uh, an old Charles Finney altar call. You, you, here, here's how you get saved. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and you should be saved. You can do that in your chair. You can walk forward and tell me if you want, but I'm not the one that's going to approve it. Okay, God, they're right. They're good. But if you have questions, comments, concerns, please make your way down after the service. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the rich young ruler. I think any of us who have read this account would love to see him in heaven and know that someone watered that seed, that he went home that day convicted. He may have said no to Jesus that day, but as long as he had life, he had other chances. I pray, Lord, we would be faithful to share your truth, to know the truth, that you would put people in our way to hear the truth. And if you don't, as it happened to me on the airplane to Israel, your will be done. May we be ready nonetheless. May we be willing, Lord, to give it all up. Every one of us here are rich. Every one of us are rich. What, what is it that we might be unwilling to give up? Point that out to us today. May we get right with you. This we ask and we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. May God bless you, my friends, as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.